and also Ron Rand, it's nice to see you. We prayed for your, your wife and Josiah. As uh, most of you heard last week, they are moving to the, back to the Dallas area. And so we'll definitely miss you and your family. And it's just all, nice to see all of, all of y'all's <laughs> beautiful punims, your beautiful faces this morning. So last week, we began a new sermon series exploring the letters of John. How many people were here for that? Hopefully most of you. If you were not here, I want to especially encourage you to either get the CD today or to go onto our website and listen to the sermon. Because this is going to be a sermon series, we're going to be spending the next several weeks in the letters of John. And I spent tremendous time last week giving you a little context, which is really important to understanding these letters. In a quick review, before we go on to 1 John chapter 2, I want to just recap a couple of things. So John's three letters were written during a tumultuous time for the followers of Yeshua. It was, of course, the end of the first century. We know that Jerusalem was recently destroyed and the temple was raised and the Jerusalem community and its leaders were forced to flee, scattered across the Roman Empire. We often think that you know, yes, the temple was destroyed or whatever, but people don't think about how that even affected the followers of Yeshua. Because as still a movement within Judaism, Jews being expelled from the city means the Jerusalem council and the center of even the body of faith in Yeshua was also scattered throughout the empire. As a result, coupled together with the eventual deaths of the earliest disciples and eyewitnesses, there was a lot of spiritual confusion. Around that time that the temple was destroyed, around 70 CE, John fled to Ephesus with Yeshua's mother, Mary. It was there that the apostle John wrote his three brief letters along with his gospel. And he wrote his letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught and to bring a message of hope and encouragement. This is obviously something that we can all relate to, confusing times and the need for encouragement and hope. But he also wrote, as I mentioned, to send this encouragement. The importance of reading John is also important within its Jewish context. Unlike how his writings have often been interpreted, we must remember that John as well as all of the earliest disciples, he was a faithful Jew, originally from Galilee, who understood his faith in Yeshua from an entirely Jewish context. He was covenantally faithful with a message inspired by that framework, even as he also understood that his letters would circulate more widely to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles. So even though he knew his letters would circulate widely, we have to remember he wrote it from his own cultural context, which was from within the Judean-centered religion of Judaism. So let's delve into 1 John chapter 2. This section focuses on having a correct relationship with God, which avoids sin and remains faithful to the commands of the Torah. And it begins, my children, I am writing to you these things so that you won't sin. But if someone does sin, we have Yeshua the Messiah, 
the tzaddik, the righteous one who pleads our cause with the Father. Also, he is the kapara, that he is the atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This here is a continuation of the section which began in chapter 1, verse 8, which is dealing with sin. It's important to always keep in mind when you're studying the Bible that it was not originally written with chapter and verse breaks, right? Those didn't come in until the early Middle Ages. And so sometimes when the decision was made to sometimes break up chapters, often they'll break it up in the middle of a thought, which is not very helpful, right? So this is actually continuing the earlier verses dealing with sin, uh, and then he moves into this. And he begins by saying, children. Now that doesn't sound as bad in Greek or Hebrew as it does in English, right? It sounds like he's being very condescending, like you little kids, like can't you figure this out? But he's using this here as both a general reference to people in general. Remember, in Hebrew, people groups are always referred to as B'nai something, B'nai Israel, the Israelites, right? Uh, B'nai Moavim, like the uh, B'nai Moav, the, the Moabites, right? Everybody is B'nai something, right? There is often even this reference to B'nai Adam or Ben Adam, the son of man or whatever. It's a way of, it's just a, it's a cultural linguistic way of referring to people. It's just different than English. So it's both meant to be general by saying like friends, children. You know, you see this often uh, in the language in the New Testament. We'll say friends, right? Chevra, you know, ahuvai. But it can also be a way to refer to those who are less mature in their faith. Not literally children, but meaning those who are young in their faith and have not yet reach the measure of maturity that you need to be judged by. Yeshua's role is in, here is also being referred to as an advocate on our behalf before the Father, right? It says, we know, depending on which translation you have, that he is an advocate for you before the Father. And it says that he pleads our cause. Also, he is the atonement for our sins, or some translations say the atoning sacrifice. Yeshua's sacrificial death, not only from here, but what we know th throughout scripture, provided both atonement and the remission of sins. That's why he's putting them together. But what's the difference between atonement and the forgiveness of sins? Well, in order to understand John's language, we have to go back to the Yom Kippur service, right? To the day of atonement, and especially to Leviticus 16, in the lesson of the two goats. In the lesson of the two goats, remember in Leviticus 16 on the Yom Kippur service, when the high priest who only one time every single year goes into the holy place, he then comes out, right? And there is this procedure that happens with the two goats. One goat through casting of lots is determined to be La Adonai, the one set apart for God. And then the other one, La Azazel, is to be set off for Azazel, right? Which is later taken off into the wilderness and pushed off a cliff. Now, both of these serve two different purposes. One, it says, is for the forgiveness of sin, and the other one's for atonement. So what's the difference? The sin offering was directly on behalf of the sins of the people, whereas the atonement sacrifice is what has brought us back into proper relationship with God. That's the difference. 
One separates us from God and has to be covered, but then that still leaves us hanging. And that's why you also then had the, the atoning offering, which then brought you back into proper relationship with God. The interesting thing about Yeshua's sacrificial death is it did both. It both cleanses us from our sin and brings us back into proper relationship with God, which is exactly what John is saying here. John is saying, using the language and imagery of Yom Kippur, that Yeshua's atoning sacrifice is what reestablishes our create correct relationship with God the Father. He then moves on into another section in chapter 3. I'm sorry, in verse 3 of chapter 2, dealing with covenantal responsibility. He says, the way we can know for sure that we are obeying, the, uh, the way we can be sure that we know him is if we are obeying his commands. Anyone who says, I know him, but doesn't obey his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if someone does what he says, then, tr- then truly love for God has been brought to its goal in him. This is how we are sure that we are united with him. A person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life in the way that he did. I'm going to pause here for just a second. Verse three asks a question, how can we be assured of our right relationship with him? Right? This is the question. How can we be sure? It says that the atonement of Yeshua brings into right relationship. How do we know that's true and that it has been in effect? Verse three says, the way we can be sure we know him is that we are obeying his commands. Remember, every time you read the New Testament authors, it's never the the false dichotomy that's been set up of, of action versus faith, right? Or law versus grace, sometimes you hear it. Instead, what you see over and over and over again is this idea that faith and action must go hand in hand. That from a Jewish perspective, which is a biblical perspective, talk is cheap right? Uh, James writes, you ask me about my faith and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And if you want to think that's only, oh, that's just a disciple thing. Yeshua says, you will know a tree by the fruit that it produces. This is one of the lessons when Yeshua curses the fig tree. What was the problem with the fig tree? It, It had no fruit. It claimed to be a fig tree, but it bore no fruit. So how do you know it's really a fig tree? Yeshua said, it's not. Not that it wasn't literally a, but a fig tree, but you will know a tree by the fruit that it produces. And so Yeshua over and over and over again is telling us that if you are not bearing fruit, it doesn't matter the words that are coming out of your mouth. Because clearly what is going into your mind and into your heart and everything isn't being bored by what's coming out. Instead, We demonstrate that we really truly believe what we say when we live it out. And then he goes on to say, dear friends, in verse seven, I am not writing you a new command. On the contrary, it is an old command which you have had from the beginning. The old command is the message which you have heard before. All right, so what is the message that you have heard before? 
the Torah, right? Like this isn't, this isn't some ethereal thing. He's saying, what I'm telling you shouldn't be new, right? That you have had all of the commandments given to you and you have heard them, yet I am writing you a new command. So what he's saying is it's not that this is totally new. He's connecting it to what you heard before, but he's kind of putting a different spin on it. He is saying, yet I am writing you a new command. And it's truth is seen both in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in this light while hating his brother is still in darkness. The person who keeps loving his brother remains in the light and there is nothing in him that could make him trip. But the person who hates his brother is in the dark Yet he is walking in the dark and he doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Often, this idea of a new command has been read with a supersessionist lens, right? A new command means here Yeshua is giving something that replaces the Mosaic tradition, which is not what John is putting here. And you can even see in the languages that he uses in a second that he is confirming that that's not what he's saying. Over and over again, John keeps explaining in different ways how Yeshua's new command is a continuation and an expansion of what was previously given. And you see this over and over again in the language that he continues to use throughout the book. For example, he says, this is not a new command, but an old one. It's one which you've had from the beginning. And we will see this imagery used even more in the below poem, which contrasts the wisdom of our ancestors with those of the younger in their experience and faith. Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, once said, and kind of repeating a Hasidic teaching, why do we always say the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors? Isn't it redundant? wouldn't it make more sense to just say the God of our ancestors or to just say the Lord my God or the Lord our God? He said, the reason why we say both often is that, for example, the person who says the God of my ancestors is connected to something that is bigger than themselves. But if you only rely on this idea that it's the God of my ancestors, it's not my God. And for the person who only says the Lord my God or the Lord our God, and this is the problem with many people today, it's not rooted in anything. You might feel the warm fuzzies yourself and you might think that you have received your own unique initial inspiration. I'm not saying God doesn't speak to us, but what I'm saying is that it has to be put together with something that's rooted. So the Hasidic teaching that Martin Buber retells is this idea. The reason why we say the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors is that we have a faith that is both rooted in something that is previous and something that will be even after us. That isn't just out of nowhere. It's based on the God of our ancestors. And it'll be that same God that we hope to pass down to our children in their faith. But he also says it has to be personal. You need to make the personal decision that you're going to walk in these ways. And this is the idea that John is speaking about here. John is also explaining in a different way what Yeshua already said in the Gospels. Yeshua did this unique, interesting way of doing what many rabbis did, 
of basically taking all of the Torah and boiling it down to just a couple things. For example, all of the Ten Commandments are said to be contained in the first one, right? That all 613 commandments can be condensed down to the ten, and the ten can be condensed down to the very first one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Yeshua puts it another way. He says all of the Torah basically boils down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says all of the Torah and the prophets hinges, it hangs on these two mitzvot. All the rest is commentary, right? It's basically what he says. All the rest is commentary, and you'll figure it out if you remain focused on these two things. And that's exactly what John is relating Yeshua's understanding here by saying, I'm giving you a new command, but really it's not a new command. And yet it sort of is, right? That I'm putting a different spin on this by saying that anyone who claims that they are in the light while hating their brother is still in the dark. This is love your neighbor as yourself. The person who keeps loving his brother remains in the light and there is no darkness in him or, and there is nothing in him that can make him trip. But the person who hates his brother is in the dark. Yes, he is walking in the dark, but he doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is, again, this biblical concept that you cannot love God and hate your brother, right? That the way that you really feel about God will be the way that you treat the world around us. Again, from a Jewish perspective, you cannot treat people like crap and be a pious individual. Excuse my French. (laughs) That was a technical term. But the point is the same. And I cannot be any more firm in this understanding of Yeshua. And it's the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to do because all of us do it, right? All of us tend to treat certain people, whether they have a different political opinion, where they have a different uh, you know, position on who they voted for, whether they have a different position on the way they interpret scripture, whatever we do, we tend to demonize those people. And yet, if we do that with people who are fellow believers, how much more are we even supposed to do that for our enemies? I want you to really get this. That's hard. And Yeshua says, that's easy. It's easy to love the people that love you back. Instead, I say, pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbor. This is hard, people. (laughs) It's, it's not easy, but we're supposed to. It doesn't mean that you have to just accept everything, or it doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat. It doesn't mean that you can't defend yourself, all of those kind of things. What it means is that our ideals should not be aiming for that. Everything we should do should be about peace and reconciliation. He then uses in in verses 8 through 11, again, this language that he used in chapter 1 of this duality of light and darkness, which were common Jewish themes throughout the early, uh, in early Judaism. You see over and over, whether it's in the writings of the New Testament, whether it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, other Jewish works at the time, you see this duality of light and darkness, where light represents the kingdom of God, the things that are holy and righteous, whereas darkness is a representation for either the things of the world or the things that are evil, 
right? And obviously the things of the world doesn't mean normal things. It's a way of just saying the evil stuff. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the sunset. In fact, we're required to enjoy creation. He's speaking of the world in which we're not supposed to be a part of. So moving on, we have this poem. You children, I am writing you because your sins have been forgiven for his sake. You fathers, I am writing you because you have known him who has existed from the beginning. And you young people, I am writing you because you have overcome the evil one. You children, I have written you because you have known the father. And you fathers, I have written you because you have known him who, is, who existed from the beginning. You young people, I have written you because you are strong. The word of God remains in you and you have overcome the evil one. This instruction poem is an affirmation of continuity of the previous section on covenantal faithfulness and responsibility. Again, connecting and contrasting Yeshua's teachings with the sagely wisdom of our ancestors and of tradition. John's teachings are meant to be understood within the context of continuity rather than a break with Judaism. And John describes his readers in three categories of maturation. Children, young men, and fathers, right? And if you recognize what each line is saying, what he's referring to has to deal with levels of spiritual maturity. And he covers in this highly rhetorical poem every stage of mature spiritual life, confession and forgiveness of sin, knowledge of the Father and the Son, the indwelling of God's word, and victory over the evil one. And he says that all of which is necessary for walking in the light. Just to quickly move along here in verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If someone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Because all the things of the world, the desires of the old nature, the desires of the eyes and the pretenses of life, the pretensions of life are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does God's will remains forever. This is dealing again, with avoiding sin. John is clearly concerned over and over again about sin within the community. And why? Because really the definition of sin is that sin separates us from God. That is why we are to be set apart and not like the world around us in relation to sin. There was an especially important message. This was an important message to the congregations that were now spread throughout the diaspora, right? That now, rather than, I mean, it, when these communities were settled in, in, centered in Jerusalem, it was its own thing and it had its own problems. But now you have communities that not only have the challenges of being made up of both Jews and non-Jews, but they're in a pagan world in which people worship other deities, in which they make sacrifices to other gods, that there's so much going on, even though the levels of morality were a totally different thing than what they were used to. So over and over and over again, the New Testament writers are constantly having to deal with these issues of morality and issues of paganism. Not that the Jews were practicing, but the ones in which everybody is surrounded by. So he says, children, this is the last hour. You have heard that an anti-Messiah, an antichrist is coming. And in fact, many anti-Messiahs have already arisen, which is how we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they weren't part of us, for had they been part of us, they would have remained in us. 
the last hour in false teachings, that John, as did all the earliest believers, taught and believed that they were living in the final times of Messiah's return, right? Many of them, and you see this in the way that they write, didn't expect that it would be, for example, another 2,000 years until the Messiah returned, right? They said, live this way now. And they were right, right? Because you never know when your own personal time is going to come. But he says, anti-Messiahs have already arisen. He refers first to an anti-Messiah, and then he said anti-Messiahs. And in this context, he's referring to the false teachers because their teaching is so horrible. And these false teachers were once part of the community and have now broken away. And John claims that they were never true believers. Otherwise, they still would be united with the community and in submission to the apostolic authority, which he appeals to in chapter one. All right, let's quickly keep moving. In verse 20, he writes, but you have received the Messiah's anointing from the Holy One, and you know all of this. It is not because you don't know the truth that I have written to you, but because you do know it and because no lie has its origin in truth. Who is a liar at all if not the person who denies that Yeshua is the Messiah? Such a person is an anti-Messiah. He is denying the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son is also without the Father, but the person who acknowledges the Son has the Father as well. Let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also remain in union with both the Son and the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. John is encouraging his readers to remain true to the correct teaching they have received from him and from other reliable teachers and to not be lured away by the false teachings of this breakaway group. This section also seems to give us a little bit of a glimpse into what the false teachers were teaching, possibly the denial of Yeshua as the Messiah and his deity, as well as those who remain faithful will receive their ultimate reward, which is eternal life. And he begins to close this little section by saying in verse 26, I have written you these things about the people who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the messianic anointing you received from the Father remains in you so that you have no need for anyone to teach you. On the contrary, as his messianic anointing continues to teach you about all these things and is true, not a counterfeit, so just as he taught you, remain united with him. This section is, of course, not to be meant to be understood as against being under proper instruction, but not to be led astray by the false teachers. This is why, as we will see later in chapter four, we are to test the spirits, meaning we are responsible for what we are being taught and who we are receiving our guidance from. And this is true whether the false teaching is intentionally received or not, or whether it's intentionally done or not. John uses harsh language for the false teachers he, he is addressing by saying that their deception is intentional, people who are trying to deceive you. And he closes, and now children remain united with him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you should also know that he is the father of everyone who does what is right. In these two transitional verses, John encourages his readers and listeners to remain faithful and not lose hope, but to stay strong 
and to live righteously. He is also saying, which is interesting, knowing that his audience is mixed, he's saying that everyone who does these things and follows these instructions has God as their father, right? You should also know that he is the father of everyone who does what is right. Whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, if you are now a believer in Yeshua and you follow these instructions to live in the way that is expected, then you have God as your father. This is just echoing the, what Paul says, right? The words of Ephesians, which, again, part of the key to unlocking Paul is Acts 15, right? In which he says, you Gentiles, you've been brought near, right? That now, simply through faith, you share in the same blessings as Israel. You basically have been brought into the commonwealth of, commonwealth of Israel. Without becoming Jews, you still share in the blessings of the Jewish people by coming alongside Throughout these letters of John, we're going to see over and over again this idea of faith, to not lose hope, but to believe despite all of the things around us that would push us to not believe. We see also a message of hope that despite the, just the, the terrible circumstances that we find ourselves in, that now our center of leaders has been scattered, the place in which is the center of our faith, the temple has been destroyed, and now there's this diaspora of Jews spread out across the empire in greater numbers than we were even before to not lose hope. Even though persecution is rising against the believers to not lose hope. And in all of this, not only are we not supposed to lose hope and keep our faith, we're supposed to avoid sin because sin separates us from God. We're also supposed to be spiritually mature to every day try to grow in our relationship with God and to not be deceived by those who bring instructions that are wrong. This is sometimes hard to do because often we sit under teachings which sound really good, but in reality are separating us from the truth. And more than anything, again, we're not supposed to lose hope but walk in the light. I want to encourage us to walk in the light, to be people whose greatest desire and passion is to do the will of our Father. Yeshua said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. And say, for it will be easy. <laughs> it says, but you will be filled. Avinu, our Father, I pray that you would continue to move within us. That not only you would draw us closer to you and your presence, but to one another. Because as it also says in your word, that, we will, that, that the world will know that we are truly your disciples by the love that we have for one another. The way that despite our differences, we stick up for one another, that we protect each other, we support each other, we speak life to one another. Help us, God, to grow in these two great commandments, these two great myths vote, our love of you and our love for one another. Because in this way, we hasten the return of our Messiah. Help us, our Father. Purge us from the things that are holding us back. 
as difficult as that is, so that we can walk in the light and help prepare the world for the return of Messiah. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So please rise.